Welcome to another episode of The Brand Called You, a podcast and podcast show that brings you leadership lessons, knowledge, experience, and wisdom from thousands of successful individuals from around the world. I'm your host, Ashutosh Garg, and today I'm privileged to welcome a very, very learned and knowledgeable academic uh, researcher from the UK, but speaking to us from Budapest today, Mr. David Martin-Jones. David, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Um, David is the Director of Research of the Danube Institute in Budapest. He's a visiting professor of war studies at King's College University of London. And he's an author. And all of you know, I am very partial to authors. He's an author of several books, and I'm going to read out some of them. History's Fools, The Pursuit of Idealism and the Revenge of Politics, The Strategy of Maoism in the West, Toward Illiberal Democracy in Pacific Asia, Political Development Pacific Asia, Conscience and, Conscience and Allegiance in 17th Century, The Image of China in Western Social and Political Thought. So David, you know, you are a China guru or a China expert. And I thought today we'll speak about China and Asia to you. Let me start by asking you, when did you first become interested in China? Well, my interest in China began when I left the London School of Economics after getting my PhD there um, and not being able to find a job anywhere in the UK in the 80s and uh, being advised to, to try Singapore. Um, where the director of the LSE, Michael Leifer, had had mm. a long-term association. So I, I basically went to Singapore to mm. teach political thought mm. and realized very quickly that there was um, a, a very significant Asian culture that, you know, because of my Eurocentric background, mm. I, I was aware of but hadn't really understood the... Um, the depth of the cultural understandings, both, well, in India, but also in China. So okay. Singapore being dominated by a, you know, Chinese, uh, um, overseas Chinese yeah. community mm. and becoming, and Singapore being increasingly interested in an opening up of China mm. and, and trading with it after the, the you know Maoist era mm. um, it was a very exciting time to look at um, Chinese thought mm. and Chinese development practice so my Chinese awareness was based on overseas China yeah very interesting very interesting so you know I have I've been visiting China since 1989 and I must have been there about 50 mm. or 60 times uh but I wanted to ask you, you know, the different leaders of China, starting with, say, Deng. Deng Xiaoping believed in growth with folded hands. Uh, Xi Jinping believes in the checkbook diplomacy. Hmm. How do you see the differences or similarities in the opening of China under Deng and Xi? Well, as you know, and, you know, you, you've obviously been to China a lot more than I have. Um uh, Deng's uh, uh, pragmatism was based on the understanding that um, the Maoist era, um, Maoist economic policies and, and its cultural revolutionary policies had actually been utterly disastrous. And although, you know, formally he couldn't say that, 
uh, Deng made the strategic decision to open up uh, areas for foreign investment mm -hmm. and encourage foreign investment. And the consequences were um, astonishing, really. So, you know, places like Shenzhen went from being, um, you know, um, muddy sort of coastal um, uh, areas with, with no employment into, um, a, you know, a, a, a kind of megalopolis of about uh, 30 million people within you know 20 years mm. so so deng's policy was very much to open china to foreign direct investment which was the basis then of its growth uh, by the time you get to see mm. you've got a, a a far more developed china Correct. with its own um capacity to develop um uh, uh you know competitive particularly tech um, uh, competitors mm -hmm. with Western um, alternatives. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the story of Huawei mm -hmm. in this context yeah. becomes, you know, uh, you know, an, an emblematic story, if you mm -hmm. like, you know, because Huawei started in Shenzhen. Yeah. Um, it was started by a former uh, uh, Red Army um, mm -hmm. engineer, uh, at the time, in, in the early 80s, China didn't even have, um, you know, uh, real landlines. It had to take that technology from um, from UK tech companies. Yeah. And it was, um, you know, the, uh, the, the strategic insight to then um, make a deal with Hong Kong telcos, mm. Hutchinson, Wampoa particularly, mm. to develop Huawei, which then becomes, you know, a, an international brand with a huge footprint, not only, you know, in, in, in Asia, but mm. in the UK as well, until, you know, it was cut out after mm. fears of um, espionage from mm. the UK government. Mm. So. The, the structure of the Chinese economy changes dramatically from Deng to Xi mm -hmm. in a way that China can now uh, export its models to the world mm -hmm. rather than being dependent on overseas technology to get growth developing. Very interesting. And when you talk of uh, Deng Xiaoping, what did he do differently? to power the Chinese economy since 1981. And how is Xi Jinping doing it differently? Uh, he seems to be reining it in. Well, uh, I think the, the, the day model, as I said, was, was you, know, it, you know, hugely pragmatic. Um, and it emphasized um, growth and development of a, a middle class mm. and a... Um, uh, growing its own, um, uh, you know, tech and manufacturing industries by being, you know, labor competitive with, um, uh, you know, Southeast Asia or other East Asia dragon economies. So, I mean, the China model followed very much the East Asian model mm. of the um, uh, 60s and 70s, you know, Taiwan, um, Hong Kong, um, uh, Japan, South Korea 
had all followed that um, uh, flying geese model that mm. the Japanese talked yeah. about. Mm. Um, and, and so Deng was a variation upon that, except, you know, China was a far bigger economy potentially than anywhere else in Asia. Um, and once it reached a certain developmental level, it was able to um, uh, not only be um, uh, able to, uh, you know, rely on foreign expertise it had developed its own expertise and could then project its kind of model outward a china model which um z talks about as part of even a china dream you know which he announced in 2013 okay. so the, the the there is a sort of relationship between the uh deng model and the z model but the z model is is very much based on um a much more powerful economic um, uh, capacity and a, um, uh, a, a, a an economic model that expands outwards rather than requires inward investment into its own economy. Well said. And now coming on to to Xi Jinping, you know, uh, for for a whole you know several generations of Chinese were brought up on Mao's Red Book. Now, uh, Xi Jinping is the only other chairman of the party who's got his own little book. Yes. Um, which is now being, uh, you know, seen in, on, on every student's table, every teacher's table, etc. I'd love to get your perspective on what are the implications of such kind of indoctrination? Yeah, well, I, I mean, the... the um... The model is not a very happy one, mm. uh, I would say, I if we if we are aware of, um, you know, um, as sort of cultural historians, mm. I suppose, um, you know, the experience of Mao's um, uh, little red book was was for a generation of Chinese um, utterly catastrophic. You know, the the Cultural right. Revolution. Yeah had huge consequences upon China. Mm. And also it, it was one of China's first exports mm. to the left in yep. the West, mm. you know, which in turn has left its own um, disturbing legacy, as mm. I've um, written in a recent book on the strategy of Maoism, mm. where China abandoned its assault on its own culture. But those in the West picked up Mao's model, mm. and you can see it translated into the current iconoclastic attacks on everything to do with Western civilization at the moment. Mm. So um, I, I would have thought that there as C, um, obviously China is very powerful in a way that it wasn't under Deng, economically powerful mm. and potentially militarily powerful. And it is, you know, had, has always had a, um, a propensity to welcome strong, powerful, almost godlike leaders, mm. you know, which is, a, which is a tendency in, in, in a Chinese uh, civilizational uh, sense mm. to look to the mandate of heaven mm. being, you know, transmitted through an imperial figure. So, so ironically, Z has picked as like as Mao did, mm. has picked up on this uh, traditional view of power, and now 
tries to promote himself and the party as almost omnipotent in mm. its self-understanding. Mm. This is um, potentially um, very dangerous, as the Mao example would 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 indicate. Well said. Well said. And you know, coming from the perspective of the power of China, I've often wondered that without fighting a single war, China has become a major superpower. Uh, do you think China has become the bully of Asia? Um, to some extent, I, I think we've got to be um, quite careful about what um, China um, uh, wants. Mm. Uh, it's quite clear that, you know, uh, once China emerges, uh, as Napoleon said, what once the dragon awakes, mm. um, it's going to be um, uh, not only economically, but politically um, influential or well, hugely influential because of the, you know, the way in which uh, a country of, you know, 3.5 billion people mm. uh, must be with the territorial area it, 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 um, it, it encompasses. Mm. So the very nature of its economic growth mm. uh, means that it will exert its um, uh, economic and political power regionally. Mm. Hence, um, its expansion mm. uh, post the Asian financial crisis of the 19, late 1990s mm. into Southeast Asia and across Eurasia uh, through the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Mm. So that kind of um, influence and growth was entirely predictable mm. merely by its economic and developmental weight. Other aspects of Chinese um, uh, increasing uh, assertiveness take the form of a more bullying behavior, mm. notably in the South China Sea mm. uh, and sometimes elsewhere as well. Correct, correct. But given all the work that you've done uh, with China, uh, do you see any chinks in the incredible armor of China? Yeah, I think, um, you know, China has, um, I mean, if you look back, as you will know, to the Deng era, um, there was the Tiananmen event yep. of um, 1989, mm. uh, which taught the party, you know, a, a, you know, a, well, the, it derived a, a key lesson from it that you um, uh, open up the economy, but you maintain the levers of power on, on politics. Mm. Now, there was always there was a generation of thinkers post 1990, post. Mm. Uh, Francis Fukuyama's end of history, mm. but assumed that although China might um, uh, restrict democratic aspiration, mm. the mere fact that it had a growing middle class of what about eighty million people by mm. the uh, you know the second decade of the twenty first century, mm. this would inevitably promote. Um, 
you know, a, a desire for more democracy, more autonomy, more liberalization. Mm. And the problem is the party won't recognize that um, aspiration, mm. which is still there, I would argue, amongst um, the more educated elements of urban, uh, uh, you know, Chinese society. Um, so th th there is an increasing insistence under Z mm. for um, uh, following the leadership, following the party, and, and not dissenting. And even businessmen who've been very successful, um, like the Alibaba yep. founder, um, or um, you know Hong Kong entrepreneurs like the Apple Daily. Yeah. Mm, mm. Uh, you know, as soon as they they can fall foul of the regime with quite brutal consequences, yeah. really. Mm. And ultimately, this will not sustain um, an economically successful superpower. Mm. I mean, history shows really that um, uh, such autocracies, um, while looking powerful, can be... Um, internally uh, divided and its strictness could presage, you know, um, collapse at some point. Mm -hmm. I mean, the last couple of years, um, uh, they've not been great for democracy, mm -hmm. but they haven't been so good for autocracies either. Correct. Correct. Well said. The other question I had from you, David, was that uh, China seems to have opened up blanks with every single country it shares a border, including those it shares a water border with. And I was last reading that they've even claimed Vladivostok from Russia. Right, yes. So no, that, yeah. what, 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 in your opinion, is the reason it's opening up so many flanks? Well, I think that, 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 that's a very interesting question. I mean, obviously, on, well, I think, well, the, the understanding behind Z and the China dream mm. is that um, China lost face dramatically in the century of humiliation, um, beginning with, of course, the Opium Wars yeah. and, and, and then the series of unequal treaties that, that cut China to pieces in some ways internally and with its external relations. So the dream of the Communist Party, although socialist, has also been, you know, deeply nationalist as well. And part of that nationalist agenda is to return China to its historic role as Zhongguo, the central kingdom. Correct. And that means to, to re-establish its control of its Ming periphery. Mm. And so the, the um, South China Sea in, in um, uh, that style of thinking mm. is merely a Chinese lake. And uh, the Nanyang, Southeast Asia, is essentially a tributary um, uh, set of um, arrangements. Mm. Um, Japan has always been a problem historically. Mm. Um, uh, the Koreas had always been part of the the Ming, um, you know, uh, Tang imperial uh, Song uh, understanding, yeah. uh, merely extensions of um, the the um, imperial model of China. Mm. And then, you know, what's I think, you know, your question about Vladivostok, I think, is 
is pretty crucial mm. in the current um, geopolitical context because right. we're all focused on Ukraine mm. in Budapest. Mm. But people are not paying attention to the fact that uh, much of Russia, um, Asian Russia, is east of the Urals. Now, when was that ceded to Russia? You know, well, after the um, Franco uh, uh, Franco uh, Anglo French War mm. against Beijing in the eighteen sixties, mm. uh, in which um, you know there was a un further unequal treaties, mm. and China was opened up not only to Anglo French influence but German and particularly Russian. And there was a Russian uh, 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 Qing Treaty signed in 1865, mm -hmm. the Peking Treaty, yeah. which ceded that area um, uh, north of um, Mongolia mm -hmm. to Russia in perpetuity. And what we know about that area, um, which was the, the source of a border war between Russia and China, Correct. or Soviet Union and China in 1962, mm. is that China has always thought of that part of um, Pacific Russia mm. as Chinese. And the problem for Russia currently is that most of its population is west of the Urals, mm. east of the Urals, um, uh, Russia is hugely underpopulated. Um, there are more Chinese probably in uh, that area mm. than there are Russians yeah. at the moment, yeah. and they're the ones trading there. Mm. And as we know, um, uh, uh, you know, feet on the ground can soon become lines on the map. Mm. So it's probably more interesting geopolitically mm. rather than... Uh, uh, you know, sort of obsessing about the South China Sea mm. to look at uh, China's strategic intentions towards Pacific Asia. That's an amazing perspective. Thank you. Uh, I'd, like, I'd like to now move to Taiwan. Um, you know, there is this constant saber rattling that's going on. And of course, America keeps saying nothing can happen. But I'd love mm. to get your perspective on where do you think uh, other than, of course, this constant comment that we that the two two countries one one country two systems and we will reunify, where do you think uh, the Taiwan challenge will go to? Well, it, it's obviously hard to uh, speculate given Absolutely. the amount of saber rattling that's going on. Mm. Um, I think you know there there are, there are two aspects to it. One, one is the Taiwan economy. Mm. As you know, is hugely locked in yeah. to Fujian. Correct. Province, you know, so um, it, its manufacturing um, capacity requires on uh, you know um, extra labor in Fujian to um, promote its uh, brands globally, um, and you know both in chemical uh, manufacturing, um, you know iPhones, etc. It's all uh, the, the Taiwan Fujian, um, you know, kind of um, uh, linkage is it, critical to Taiwan. So, in a way, Taiwan and China are already integrated as an economy. The problem is, of course, that the Taiwanese do not want to become part of mainland China. They still want their own 
relative autonomy, mm. even though um, the the Guomindan, the KMT, have much closer relationships with you know mainland China mm. than the Democrats in Taiwan, and and Taiwan is a democracy mm. unlike China, mainland China, mm. and this is you know part of the problem, part of the dilemma. It seems to me, despite all the saber rattling. Mm that it would be disastrous for both China and Taiwan to, to go to war. You know, I mean, mm. China would wants to over overawe Taiwan mm. into just folding up and saying, okay, we want to be part of greater China. Mm. Um, but it would be far better doing that by um, persuasion rather than uh, threats. Mm. I, Given what's happened in Ukraine recently with Russia, I would have thought the more sensible, um, you know, um, uh, pragmatic um, uh, um, uh, people in the party or in the um, Red Army mm. would be thinking very carefully about what, you know, an invasion of tai Taiwan would mm. uh, would, do, would yeah. achieve, you know, mm. and it would be far more sensible, really, to um, avoid confrontation with Taiwan and mm. think about what you could gain by taking Vladivostok. Mm. <laughs> well, that's a very interesting perspective we're thinking about. And I have time for only one more question, David, and I'm now going to come to a much larger uh, geography. There's this new axis, there's the Quad, there's AUKUS, you know, and all of them purportedly to protect the Pacific Ocean. But people say it's also for China. But then there is this new axis that is being talked about between USA, India, Japan, Australia, and Israel. And I'm told several of the Southeast Asian countries, including Vietnam, have expressed interest uh, in being a part of it. Do you think these countries really will be able to control the might of China economically and militarily? I think it's um, it's well it's an interest, interesting perspective arrangement, you know, and it's um, uh, significantly an Asian arrangement, mm. um, which China will obviously think of as a containment strategy, you know, um, and I think it must be um, making um, those in Beijing conscious of the fact mm. that. They haven't played it, you know, under Deng, the opening up of China and its, um, uh, you know, it, it, its ability to emerge, as you said, with uh, as a superpower without conflict was based on the premise that, you know, uh, the Americans and the uh, Southeast Asians uh, under you know the ASEAN Regional Forum and other devices, mm. thought that uh, China could be shaped into good international citizenship. Mm -hmm. That was the aspiration of the 90s and the first decades of the 21st century. Mm. Uh, China has kind of blown its um, image mm. as a, a responsible uh, emerging great power. Mm. And thus it's provoked in some ways mm. this inevitable realist reaction of those who feel threatened, not only the United States, but mm. obviously Australia, 
even to some extent, you know, Singapore, which always mm. plays a Janus-faced yeah. game. Mm. Um, but certainly, you know, Indonesia, obviously India, mm. but Japan has been much more abrasive, or, you know, since Abe. And Abe saw his relationship with India as a key mm. relationship for Japan going Very forward. And Vietnam is an obvious, you know, kind of uh, long-term uh, victim mm. of what it sees as okay. Chinese, um, you know, assertiveness. Mm. So um, I think this this sort of emerging alliance mm. is something that China would have to think about very closely. Mm. But it's, it's a sort of, um, it's interesting that China's own thinking is probably um, not so much maritime, but um, uh, you know, um, land-centered. Mm. It's pushing into Central Asia mm. and into um, uh, Pacific Russia, mm. which it sees as it's um, increasingly, um, you know, got, it's got an unthreatening uh, capacity mm. to potentially dominate um, the world island, as mm. H. L. Kinder mm. described it. Well said. And on that note, David, we've run out of time. I would I can, I can keep speaking to you for hours, given the kind of knowledge you have. But thank you so much for talking to me about China. I mean, I think I've learned many, many new things from you today. Thank you for speaking to me about Deng Xiaoping and Xi Jinping. Thank you for talking to me about China, the economy, and some of the opportunities and the threats that it could potentially represent for Asian countries and maybe the world in general. Thank you for speaking to me and good luck. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the brand called You Videocast and Podcast, a platform that brings you knowledge, experience and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website www.tbcy.in to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for the brand called you.